morning, if you're new with us, we are walking pretty slowly through the gospel according to Matthew, and we are in a series this morning called The True People of God, which really started in Matthew 21. We will be in Matthew 22, but the section, the new section, started there in Matthew chapter 21 with what we call the triumphal entry. And as I mentioned when we started chapter 21-1, the rest of this whole book is one week in the life of Jesus, the last week, Holy Week. So there in chapter 21, in fact, turn to 21 and just follow me a little bit as we remind ourselves on where we've been. Jesus is entering the city of Jerusalem, and he's riding on a donkey, and that wasn't random, and that wasn't because he was tired. It was to fulfill several Old Testament passages, but there at 21.5, he actually quotes from Zechariah 9 to show that he, Jesus, is the coming king who will come and judge the temple. He's on his way to Jerusalem as the king. This journey is Jesus' royal procession. And remember, he was celebrated on the way in, but questioned once he arrived in the temple. And remember there in chapter 21, verses 12 and following, he cleans out the temple. Cleans it out, and he, he quotes a couple of Old Testament passages, Jeremiah chapter 7 and Isaiah 56. And if you remember, Jeremiah 7 was Jeremiah's temple sermon. He's there outside of the gates of the temple, and he's warning the people of God, if you don't repent, they had gone astray, and he's warning them, if you don't turn back, this place will be judged, like it was judged before at Shiloh. And then Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, which is this future vision, future for Isaiah, past for us. But in Isaiah's day, it was a future vision of when God would come and bring his rule, bring the kingdom, and he would turn his temple, his house, into a house of prayer for all nations. God would become king, and he would include Gentiles even in that chapter, as his ministers, as his priests. And then Jesus leaves the temple and he curses the fig tree, which is symbolic of old covenant Israel. They'll never bear fruit again. And then the leaders continue to question Jesus' authority. Then you look at chapter 21, verse 28 and following. And Jesus teaches us three more parables about the kingdom. And these parables really have a particular point and a particular focus. This is why this series of sermons has been kind of hard. Hard to preach, probably hard to listen to, because it's really about the final generation of Old Covenant Israel. The Word of God, in this case, is not about us. It's to us, but it's not about us. Look at chapter 21, verse 45. They picked up on that. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And so these parables are about true and false Israel. And they basically say the same thing. All three parables in a row basically making the same point. Jesus really wants us to get this. The first one there in 2128 and following was Israel's indictment. The second one there in 2133 and following was Israel's sentence. And this morning we'll look at 22 and see Israel's execution. Main point, the king will judge unrepentant Israel and open up the kingdom to all who trust the king. Let's consider three points together. First, the king's gracious invitation. Second, the expansion of that invitation. And then third, the examination of the guests. So first, the king's gracious invitation. Look with me again at Matthew 22. Verse 1, and again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, 
and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, Jesus speaking in parable, the kingdom of heaven's like this. It's like a king who held a feast for his son. We all know who the son is in this parable. And once again, Jesus, he's not just a good moral teacher. He implies his own divinity. Once again, he talks about his own unique divine sonship. He is the son. And the king sends his servants to call those who are invited. Literally, it's to call those who were called or to call those who had been called. They had already been invited and now they're being summoned. Okay, it's go time. This was just the common practice in the ancient Greco-Roman world. They would send this initial invitation, but the specifics would not be included in that initial invitation. It's kind of like our modern day save the dates. The official invitation would come later. And this sort of double invitation is the norm. They would need to know how many animals, what kind of animals to butcher. And so these people had already been invited to call those who had been called. But when they were summoned, they refused to come. They had talked the talk initially, but when it was go time, they did not walk the walk. What does it say there at the end? But they would not come. Jesus will say in just a couple chapters when he moves from speaking to parables, just a straight talk. He says, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. They were unwilling. They wouldn't come. They refused when called. And the verb here, it's in the imperfect tense, which implies this continual rejection. They just kept on refusing. They go back on their word, just like the parable of the two sons previously. Look at chapter 21, verse 30. He went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. So they're invited, but they wouldn't come. Look at chapter 22, verse 4. Again. He sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. He sends yet more servants to remind them everything's ready for my son's wedding feast. You said you would come. The animals are slaughtered. Come to the wedding feast. Once again, we see the patience of the king toward his sinful people. Again, just like the previous parable. Look at chapter 21, verse 34. The patience. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son, but we know from last time that they don't. This king is so patient, extremely patient, forbearing, giving chance after chance after chance. And many of them, they're just, they're just simply not interested. Look at verse 5. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. They just pay no attention to the invitation. It's not that they could not come. It's that they would not come. They're just not interested. They're, they're apathetic. The word means they just don't care. My man J.C. Ryle says this, Open sin may kill its thousands. It surely does. Open sin may kill its thousands. But indifference, but indifference and neglect of the gospel kill their tens of thousands. Multitudes 
will find themselves in hell, not so much because they openly broke the Ten Commandments, as because they made light of the truth. Christ died for them on the cross, but they neglected him. And so church, beware of indifference. Beware of apathy. I want to speak to our teenagers for a moment. We're our young adults. In fact, in the White House, we don't use the word teenagers. I encourage you to just throw that, throw that vocabulary out the window. Young adults, that's what we're talking about. Let me just speak to you for a moment, young adults. You are at such an important age, really at a, a crossroads as a young adult. And a temptation for your age, and I'm thinking really, I'm thinking of 12 and on. A temptation for your age is apathy. And so just let me, or really let Jesus, urge you, exhort you to make sure you don't grow in indifference about the things of God. Fight that temptation. Lean in. Go all in. Reject passivity. Fight against apathy, young people. And pursue the Lord with zeal. Redeem these young adult years. They're so important. You're building a foundation for the rest of your life. And so redeem these days. Start pursuing the Lord wholeheartedly now. Novelist Dostoevsky said this. It can apply to men and women. The second half of a man's life is made up of the habits that he acquired during the first half. You hear that, young people? The second half of your life is made up of the habits you're acquiring right now. And so let me just urge you, wake up. If you're bored by the things of God, wake up. What you're doing now matters way more than you think, and it will shape the rest of your life. And so start building good habits now. Pursue the Lord now with zeal. All the, the disciplines of grace that the Lord has given us that will shape you into man of God one day or a woman of God one day. Word. Time in the word. Time in prayer daily. Prioritizing the church every time we gather. Sharing the gospel. Giving all the things. All the disciplines. As the old proverb goes, sow, S-O-W, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. So a habit, reap a character. So a character, reap a destiny. And so beware of indifference to Jesus. If you feel your heart being bored, you feel your heart getting cold to Jesus, wake up. Make a change. Don't be lukewarm, right? That's what Jesus rebuked the church in Laodicea for in the book of Revelation. He said, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And so young people, beware in particular of apathy. But let me also speak to the kids, 12 and under, among us. The younger, young adults. You know, you're so blessed, children. You are blessed way more than you know to be in a family that's in a church like Southside. To be in a Christian home that cares about the word of God, a strong home. How kind of God to put you little ones in the homes that he's put you in. In that sense, you've been invited. But now God is inviting again, 
called those who are called. He calls you personally to respond. You, children, you must personally respond to God. Having Christian parents will mean nothing when it comes to your standing before God. Being raised in a Christian home means nothing on judgment day. You must personally trust Jesus. You must personally commit your lives to the Lord. If you don't personally commit to the Lord, your upbringing won't matter. You can be dedicated as an infant. You can be prayed for nightly. You can be instructed in daily family worship. You can hear the gospel again and again, but it won't help you a bit if you don't make a decision to trust Christ and commit your whole life to him. And so young people, make your faith your own. Well, back to the parable here. You know, some are indifferent. Some don't care. They're bored with it. They pay no attention. But others are just concerned with other things. Look at verse 5. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, distracted by the things of the world. At the end of the day, they're textbook idolaters. For anytime we put anything above the Lord, it's become an idol. Anytime we put anything above the Lord, it's become our functional Savior. Occupations are good and fine, but they become dangerous to our souls when they become preoccupations. And we're all prone to worship the work of our hands. They preferred their own work over the invitation of the king. British Baptist pastor Charles Spurgeon tells the story of a ship owner who was visited by a man of God who asked him, well, sir, what's the state of your soul? To which the merchant said, soul? I have no time to take care of my soul. I have enough to do just taking care of my ships. Spurgeon said, but he was not too busy to die, which he did a week later. Church, the world wants to just lull you and distract you and preoccupy you from the things that matter most. And so don't be so busy trying to make a living that you fail to make a life, a life that matters, ultimately eternal life. So others just didn't care. They were indifferent, but others became violent. Look at the next verse, chapter 22, verse 6. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Just like the wicked tenants before, they persecute and they kill the servants of God. And then Jesus is going to tell us who he's talking about explicitly in the next chapter. Flip over to Matthew chapter 23 and look at verse 29. He moves from parable to prose. Twenty-nine, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, the leaders of Israel, they're hypocrites. For you build the tombs of the prophets kill their own. You decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part in them, with them, in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you'll flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, 
from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house, talking about the temple, is left to you desolate. They're not only indifferent, they're violent. Just like the first century leadership of Israel had become violent against the people of God, against the prophets, against the righteous. And so, friends, we just need to know there's going to be a lot of people that reject Jesus. And we shouldn't be surprised when they reject us. His own people rejected him. And so as we seek to share what we consider to be glorious news, people are going to yawn at best, mock us get violent at worst. They'll prefer their own trinkets. They'll prefer their own hobbies. It was that way then. It's that way now. The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And so just expect it. And don't be discouraged by it. Don't be discouraged in your evangelism. They rejected the servants of the Lord. They rejected the prophets. They refused the king's invitation. They're going to refuse yours too. But don't grow weary and doing good. Expect it. And so they get violent. Some don't care. Some get violent. How does the king respond? Look at verse 7 of Matthew 22. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Here's the execution. The king brings judgment. He sends troops. He destroys them and burns their city. This is clearly referring to what will take place in just a generation. The destruction of Jerusalem. The destruction of Jerusalem, including its temple in A.D. 70. In fact, many liberal theologians say, well, Matthew, Matthew couldn't have written this before this happened. How would he know that the Roman army would come in and destroy Jerusalem and its temple? Well, it's called a prophecy. And by the way, it's not Matthew. It's Jesus who says it. It's just unbelief that dismisses it. Jesus knows exactly what he's talking about. Jesus is going to predict this. In fact, flip back to Matthew 23. I stopped short. Look at 23 verse 38. See, your house, the temple, it's left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple. He's been in this temple the whole time. Now he leaves and he was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And we know from history that this prophecy was fulfilled to a T. Multiple times so far through the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has predicted that the generation that was now alive, the generation under his voice, would live to see it. Y'all know this history? This is just, just think about secular history for a moment. First century history, it's incredible. From a secular standpoint, this was just the first Roman-Jewish war. The Jews had revolted again against Rome, starting in around A.D. 66, initiated by the Zealots, these Jewish folks that thought they had to basically get violent. And so they revolted against Rome, and Rome got, finally got tired of it and responded yet again with force. Led by Titus, they come in and they destroy 
the city of Jerusalem. One million Jews lost their lives in this war. And it was the end of Judaism. Just think about it. No temple, no Judaism. Just think about how much of our Old Testament, how much of Old Covenant Judaism has to do with the temple. Everything. You remove the temple, you remove Old Covenant Judaism. That's why they basically had to reinvent themselves under what's known as rabbinic Judaism. So there's no longer a temple, no longer the central symbol of the religion, and so they turn to the book. The problem is the book is mostly about the temple. Sad, tragic history. From the biblical standpoint, this is Jesus predicting judgment on his unrepentant people, that final generation of unrepentant old covenant Israel. This is the end. As he cursed the fig tree that was symbolizing Israel, he said, may no fruit ever come from you again. And their city was burnt. Listen to the way Josephus, Josephus wasn't a Christian. He was a Jewish historian. And he wrote about this war. Here's how he describes it. He says, on the next day, the Romans drove the, drove the robbers out of the lower city and set all on fire. As far as Siloam, these soldiers were indeed glad to see the city destroyed. Accordingly, as the people were now slain, the holy house was burnt down and the city was on fire. There was nothing further left for the enemy to do. Rome sacked Jerusalem and burned it to the ground in AD 70 and it's never been the same. And history also tells us that the gold, the the fine metals, it got so hot there that it seeped in between the stones. And so in order to pull out the precious metals, they literally took off stone by stone by stone so that Jesus' prediction was fulfilled to a T that there wasn't one stone left upon another. The Roman army came in and was used by God to judge his people. And God often did that. In fact, it's the main way God would judge his people was using pagan nations. Just think with me about Isaiah 10. God uses Assyria to judge his people. Isaiah 10 verse 5 says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. God uses Assyria as his rod. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Isaiah 10 is fascinating because God raises up Assyria as his rod and he judges Israel but Assyria got boastful about it. So God judged them. Raise them up to judge and then judge them for their arrogance. God can do what he wills. Isaiah 44, he uses Cyrus, pagan leader, and he says, Cyrus is my servant. Jeremiah 25, he uses Babylon to rout Israel and he calls Nebuchadnezzar my servant. And now he will use the Romans as his troops. Jesus says their city will be burned. Notice he says it's their city. It's now their city. It's no longer God's city. It's become what the book of Revelation will call the harlot. Flip over to me with me to the end of Revelation chapter 17. John has given a revelation of this judgment in Jerusalem becomes what he calls a harlot. He calls her a prostitute. He calls, much like the prophets of old, he calls Jerusalem Babylon. Look at Revelation 17, verse 1. 
Our parable is about the judgment on one and the invitation to the wedding feast of the sun. Revelation 17 verse 1 says, Then one of the seven angels who had seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute who's seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman... Drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Look over at chapter 18, verse 2. And he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. He told us in Revelation chapter 11 that the great city is Jerusalem. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, and a haunt for every unclean and detestable Beast. Look at Revelation chapter 18, verse 8. For this reason, her plagues will become in a single day death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who's judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and well over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Look at Revelation 18, verse 17. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste, and all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? Look at verse 24, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who've been slain on earth. You have judged the judgments of the prostitute, the judgment of Babylon, and then we flip to the next chapter, 19, and we have the marriage supper of the Lamb in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. The prostitutes judged and the bride adorns. Their city will be burned, Jesus says. But that's not the end of the story. Look back at Matthew 22, verse 8. Second point is the king expands his gracious invitation. The king expands his gracious invitation. Look at verse 8. 
Their city will be burned, verse 8. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. He says, those invited were not worthy. What does that mean? Back in chapter 10, if you remember, back in 2014 or so, Jesus has sent out the apostles on mission. And he sends them on mission and he tells them to go to new towns to find who was worthy. And what he means there in chapter 10 is clearly not who's good, who's not who's worthy of salvation. None of us are that. But it's those who would be receptive, those who would receive the apostles. The worthy are those receptive of the message. The unworthy are those who reject the call. They will be excluded. They will be replaced. Here's how Luke puts it. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquets. And so the king tells his servants to therefore go, hit the streets, invite as many as you can to the feast for my son. Here's how one commentator puts it. He says, calling anybody you find, rather than as before calling the twice invited, indicates again the great transfer that occurred when the word of God went out to the Gentile worlds. When Israel rejected its Messiah, a disaster occurred, to be sure. But not only a disaster, universal mission opened up as well. Israel's Messiah became the world's Savior. So what Jesus is communicating is that the marriage supper of the Son is now open to all. That's what he said in chapter 21, verse 43. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits, a nation consisting of any and all nations. Go invite them all. Look at verse 10. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. And so the wedding hall was filled with guests. This this new nation is a motley crew. They're from the streets. They're from the other side of the tracks. Aren't you glad? Look at chapter 21, verse 31, the second half there. Truly I say to you, the tax collectors, remember, that was the worst. The tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you do. See, in the kingdom of Christ, the first are last and the last are first. The servants gathered all they could find. Who would come? This word gather here is the word sunagagon. Sound familiar? That's where we get our word synagogue. He goes in synagogues. Jesus is forming a new people, a new synagogue, a new temple, and all nations are invited to this banquet. It's what he had already said. Flip back a couple chapters in Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. Find any who will come. Matthew 8, 11, I tell you, Jesus says, Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus now redefines his people around himself. He's the Messiah. He's the king. You must trust in him. 
That's why John opens his gospel in chapter 1. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. All are welcome. And Matthew says that the wedding hall was filled with guests. God will have his people. The marriage supper of the Lamb will be full. He extends his invitation, but... In a surprising turn of events, third, the king examines the invitees. Look at Matthew 22, verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garments. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now this is a parable, so we don't want to push any of these details too far. We don't want to press the imagery too far, but I think the garment is fruit. We've seen that again and again and again. What is the garment? I think it's the fruit of a transformed life. Whatever we make of the wedding garment, the point, though, is that there were false converts. <coughs> Excuse me. There were false converts. We've seen that again and again in Matthew. Look at chap- chapter 7, verse 21. Read these verses a lot because they're some of the scariest verses in the Bible, especially for a city like Abilene, and I needed these verses read to me for years and years and years. Matthew 7, 21, not every, everyone who says <clears throat> to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 7, 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There will be people who say that Jesus is Lord, but at the end of the day, they're not actually converted. People who claim to be Christians, that on judgment day, Jesus will say, I didn't know you. He taught the same thing in his parable of the soils. Flip over to Matthew 13. There is a reality in the New Testament of a false converts. Chapter 13, verse 18. He explains the parable here then, the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. We all know people that fit both those categories, don't we? People who at one point 
we thought were genuine Christians, people who had trusted Christ. And then something gets hard, and there's a fork in the road. And will they lean into the Lord or run away from him? And too many will run away. Look at verse 22. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. And he indeed bears fruits and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So we learn here we don't, we don't want to judge by outward appearance only. All nominal Christianity, Christianity in name only, will be weighed in the balance and found wanting. Only truly born-again believers will sit at this marriage feast. And truly born-again believers will have fruitful lives. They will bear spiritual fruit. We're saved by grace and grace alone, but grace is both pardon and power. We saw last week we were justified by faith and faith alone, but true saving faith never remains alone. It goes forth in obedience. It goes public in a transformed life. It must. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We must pursue him. There must be fruit. We must abide in Christ. Flip over to the gospel of John chapter 15. Verses 1 to 6. What does Jesus say there? I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. John 15, 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. We realize that there's such a thing as a false faith. It's not that they lost their salvation. The New Testament's really clear about that. It's that they were never saved in the first place. They never had true saving faith. Why? Because saving faith endures. Saving faith will bear fruit slowly and painfully, but surely. Those lacking the wedding garment will be judged. I know this is unpopular today. We all want a God who throws a party that's open to everyone. We want an air-conditioned hell, but it's just not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is not inclusive. He's exclusive. Only those who trust in Christ will be saved from judgments. And true trust in Christ will lead to changed lives. False converts and unbelievers will be cast into outer darkness. No light, only darkness. A place characterized by weeping, sadness, despair, suffering. 
The gnashing of teeth. What a terrible image. Darkness, tears, and anguish. The sound of gnashing teeth turns the stomach. Judgment will be more terrible than we can even fathom, which is why this message is so urgent. Trust in Christ. Follow Christ. Life is short. Eternity is long. Hell is real. So Jesus mentions judgment. <clears throat> then he says, many are called, but few are chosen. Here we learn the ultimate reason why many will reject the invitation. It's ultimately because of God's will. It's God's purpose. He says, not all are chosen. He says it really clearly. Many are called, few are chosen. Why do some deny ultimately? Why do some receive ultimately? Again, he had already taught us all this in his gospel. Flip back to Matthew chapter 11. Verse 25. 11.25, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father. This is a prayer of praise, <clears throat> Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Friends, if we've received the invitation, if we've come to the banquet, we need to realize it's not because of us, ultimately. It's not because we were wiser. We have a seat at the banquet, not because we were smarter. It's not because we are more holy. No, ultimately, we've been chosen by grace. Sweet, sovereign grace. Many are called, but few were chosen. Okay, so how should we respond to this parable? Three brief points of application. First, if you haven't, come. Come to the banquet. The invitation is open. The invitation is for you. You say, wait, wait, wait. You just said some are chosen. What if I'm not chosen? Then you wouldn't care. But here you are, and the Lord is summoning you. You're responsible. Come to Christ. Join the wedding feast. I love the way Isaiah issues his invitation in chapter 55. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me and hear that your soul may live. If you haven't come, come. Second, if you have come, make sure you've come. We don't like to do this, but the New Testament often calls us to examine ourselves. Examine your life to make sure you have a wedding garment on. Does your life bear fruit? Again, it's slow and painstaking, and we don't need to look in like one-month increments, but can you look in three-month or one-year or three-year increments and see that, yeah, okay, it's not what I want it to be, but I'm not what I used to be. 
Would the people closest to you say that over the last three years you have become more loving? Have you become over several years more joyful, more peaceful, more patient, more kind, more humble, more able to exercise self-control? 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you in the faith test yourselves. 2 Peter 1, 10, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Remember, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not the presence or absence of sin. Sin is present in every human being, in all of us. But for Christians, sin's no longer presidents. Still present, no longer president. It remains But it no longer rules us. We sin, but the difference is we fight sin. Again, listen to my man Ryle. He says, the true Christian hates sin, flees from it, fights against it, it, considers it his greatest plague, resents the burden of its presence, mourns when he falls under its influence, and longs to be completely delivered from it. I wonder if that's you. Do you hate sin? Are you trusting Christ? Are you following Christ? Go all in. Trust him all the way. Let's get rid of the so common in Abilene half-hearted Christianity. This stuff is for the birds. Half-hearted Christianity is no Christianity. Abandon yourself for him. Have Christ all the way. Life is short. He's the Lord. Abandon yourself for him. Friends, there is nothing more important than the state of your soul. May you not rest until you can answer with satisfaction, I'm the Lord's. He's mine. I'm clothed with Christ. I'm committed to him. I'm all in. So second, examine yourself. And third, if you have the assurance that the Spirit loves to give, what does he say? Go. Go to the streets. Invite other sinners to come. We beggars have found bread, so let's go tell the people. I wonder when the last time you shared the gospel was. It's a convicting question, isn't it? Let's all make it a goal. If you're a believer here, let's make it a goal. Let's share the gospel with one person this week. Pray, God, I need help. Would you give me an opportunity? Some of you have a name already on your mind. Make a goal to share the gospel with one person. This week, you can do it. It'll be fine. It'll go great. You know what you got to do? You just got to tell them Jesus saves. He'll do the rest. God does all the work here. We just get to be a part of it. He can reach the hardest of hearts in the furthest of places. Notice there what he says there. Look in verse 9, 22 verse 9. Go therefore. It's the same way he's going to end this gospel. Go therefore and make disciples. Invite them in. The king will judge those who do not repent and open up the kingdom to any and all who trust in him.